0: To more of a comment than a question. My name is Paul Connor. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Lee Jussum from Rutgers University. Uh, but before I get to that, I just wanted to give a couple of updates. So first of all, there hasn't been a podcast for a very long time. Um, and this hiatus has uh, largely been due to a, a long road trip that I took with my wife and son. So we, we drove um, most of the way across the USA. So let me see if I can recount the city. So started in San Francisco. Bend, Oregon; Seattle, Washington; Boise, Idaho; Salt Lake City, Utah; uh, Golden, Colorado; Kansas City, Missouri; Memphis, Tennessee; Dallas, (laughs) Houston—no, Dallas, Texas; Houston, Texas; uh, Marfa, Texas; Phoenix, Arizona; uh, Laguna Beach, California; then back to San Francisco. So, we really covered a lot of ground. It was—it was a lot of fun um but yeah just couldn't make podcasts on the road uh second update is i have found a postdoc i'm going to be working with professor john freeman at nyu uh for the next two years so uh, i will be able i i assume i i expect to be uh to keep producing podcasts semi-regularly over the next two years um hopefully talk to a lot of uh interesting academics and um yeah learn learn things and um talk talk about interesting topics and um yeah i hope you guys keep listening so yeah that's that's all my updates um it's good to be back in the podcast saddle so to speak um i enjoyed my conversation with lee uh, a lot um and i hope uh hope you find it interesting uh so without further ado here is my interview with professor lee jesson Okay. My guest today is a professor of psychology at Rutgers University. Many of our listeners have requested that we have you on, actually. So, by popular demand, literally, uh, welcome to the podcast, Lee Jussum.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I am uh, sort of amused and a little bit touched that, uh, <laughs> that I'm here by popular demand. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you are popular in some circles of Twitter. Let's just let's just say, um, maybe less so in others. Um, so, Lee, I think I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. Um, I mean, one of the one of the, I think the main themes of this podcast has been ideological bias in academia. We, we've we've touched on that a lot, and I know you. Well I I think I saw you on Twitter sort of self describe as you've now decided that this is this is your calling as an activist to try to counter ideological bias or or to fight for academic freedom uh against the you know the rising tide of intolerance or or whatever but yeah um I know. Uh, yeah. So let's just start talking, and you know, if if it's good, it can stay in, and if it's bad, we can uh, we can cut it cut it out later. Um, what is what's on your mind? What what's been?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, attention? it's like the, the world is a mess. So that you know, and it's just like a multidimensional <laughs> It's a multi mess. So so uh, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I would say you know on the, on the activist thing, I've given up on intellectual diversity in the academy. It's just too far gone. It's getting worse. It, there's, there's no evidence that it's getting any better. Um, so that I'm not, like, I just, like, you know, n- no. Uh, I mean, in my personal, my own work, I actually have, a, have fallen into uh, the privilege of working with people across ideological and political identity, you know, boundaries and groups. And it's some of the best stuff I've ever been involved with. I mean, you know, contra the sort of dismissive denigration stereotypes common in academia of, you know, anyone to the right of the, like, Democratic Party Center, Um, uh, these people are really smart, really insightful. They absolutely, they know things and they think about things in ways different than conventional academics. And, you know, it's for politicized work that, that's really valuable. I mean, I suppose, you know, if what you study are, you know, the cognitive and perceptual processes involved in shape perception, none of this is gonna matter, right? But but if you study you know, anything political or politicized, it really matters a lot. So that's really valuable. But I do, yes, I've thrown in the towel, I mean, I never, until very recently, until about a year ago, within the last year, I really thought I was after truth and understanding. And, you know, maybe somebody someday could make use of it in some way that would be useful. Uh, I never really thought of myself as an activist. But over the last few years, I mean, to me, academic freedom is to, to the extent that the academy at its best is a knowledge-producing mechanism, which, you know, I think that's really a problem. But, like, that's, to me, that is the ideal, one of the ideal goals of the academy, is to provide actually true knowledge, understanding, insights into things. Um, um, uh, to, to the extent that that is true, the fundamental building block is academic freedom. Uh, because if you don't, especially on politicized stuff, because if you don't have academic freedom, then what you're going to produce is, is, is basically bullshit. Um, so, uh, again, on politicized topics, not if you're studying shape perception or, you know, the biochemical processes underlying, you know, neuron connections or whatever. Um, so, so... You need academic freedom, and it's severely under threat with the sort of the rise of cancel culture and, you know, retraction by outrage mob and, uh, you know, the tenured faculty being fired, you know, for, for saying things like microaggressions are bullshit. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just it's it's it. I've never seen anything like this. And, you know, there these things have roots, historical roots, but I've never seen anything quite like this. So about a year ago, my identity as as you know, sort of the best guess, however imperfect, truth-seeking social scientist began to include an activist component, uh, where where protecting and advancing academic freedom is, you know, I, I really kind of don't. That's on principle. I don't need data on it. So yeah, that activism now. Precedes data. I mean, I think it's necessary in order to get good data on any on anything. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a primary thing, um, and yeah, I, I I see myself as an activist in that now. So yes,
0: yeah. Um, so this is interesting to me. So the 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 argument um, that I hear you making is if we uh, don't have intellectual diversity, if we don't have academic freedom. Um, our search for truth uh, suffers, right? And, and I think um, it's uh, it's a it's quite a sort of intuitive argument, um, and I and I, I I find myself agreeing with this more and more. Um, but what if somebody's a skeptic, right? So if somebody, say, my friend Manny, who comes on the pod, who is very much in the camp of, you know, this stuff's overblown. It's uh, it's just anecdotes here and there, and if you look at the data. You know, left-wing academics are criticised just as much as conservative academics. Yada yada yada. What um, what do you? I mean, obviously, like it's it's in theory this argument should appeal to everyone, no no matter what their politics, right? So like, it, you know, the search for truth is something that. Very few people sort of explicitly disavow, you know, unless they're, like, deep into some kind of Derrida type, um, well, you know, knowledge is just social social construction, yada, yada, yada. Which, by the way, is a view I'm coming around to when you see these retraction mobs, because you sort of see it. It's like, oh, yeah, power. These people have power, and they get to decide <laughs> what, what is, like, seen as true. But, yeah, so what do you think, like, in terms of empirical evidence, what would be the best Things that you would point to to try to like uh convince a skeptic
1: of 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 what exactly
0: of of the just that like our collective search for truth is being adversely affected by ideological bias um and um censorship i guess
1: yeah yeah, okay, so um <laughs> uh, uh, there's like a, a, you you asked for empirical evidence right, so that's mm-hmm. uh, you know i, I would um uh, make that argument by connecting um, sets of empirical uh, of, uh, of evidence and all sorts of stuff. Although, let me add that I would... Uh, I, I mean, I think dismissal of, quote, anecdotes is, uh, um, is is are rarely justified. So there's a, there's a weird way in which that is justified. Like if we're just having a conversation, and you tell me, you know, I tell you some study with like five thousand people, and it produces this, and you say no, but like my friend doesn't, you know, my my friend doesn't do that. Well, it's like. I, no what does that mean even it doesn't mean anything and that's kind of i think why people dismiss it but when you have scores or or in some place hundreds of ex of real world examples just because there's not some peer-reviewed publication on this who the hell gives could- this is the real world i mean you know I, 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 if it's raining out i don't need a peer-reviewed publication to take an umbrella I, you know it's, it's just like it's completely ridiculous i can look and see that it's raining out uh, you know i I mean, I don't need to read a science article about precipitation. So so anyway, so that I, that's the, the my, my attitude towards the, the dismissal of anecdotes. Um, uh, so I think that actually anecdotes are relevant here, uh, because over the last few years, uh, hundreds of people have been punished for expressing ideas. Now, not all of them have been in academia. Some some have been in other contexts. You know, James Damore is a famous one uh, in tech. Um there was also the David Shore who who also in tech, who is was... F- <laughs> You can't make this up. He was fired for tweeting a sociology a sociology article by a black Princeton professor saying that peaceful protests are more persuasive. They're more politically persuasive than violent protests, which often produce backlash. And he was fired. He was fired for tweeting. It's like you can't make this up. okay. Now that is an anecdote. That's a single person. But there are scores and scores of cases like this now. And there there are lists. You know, I've blogged on this. The National Association of Scholars has a list that's I don't know 150 people long. The Counterweight has its own list. I've public I have a list of uh that I stopped keeping up because they were coming so fast and furious of about 30 or 40 cases of academics who have been targeted for punishment by other academics for exp- expressing their ideas. And most of them are since like 2018. There's a few earlier, but most of them are are, are fairly recent. So. Okay, so I think that those are data, they're not a peer reviewed study, but those are data. Um, What you have is uh, getting back to the data. um, What you have is a massive, massive left skew in academia, especially in the fields that deal with politicized topics. Uh, uh, You know, especially the social sciences and humanities. So and when I say a massive skew, I mean, it really, you know, it's if if you're not already somewhat familiar with the data, the, the, the data sound like histrionic propaganda nightmares. um, Being promulgated by Fox News and Breitbart. Breitbart. You know, the academy is overrun with leftist professors or something like that. And I don't know about the overrun part, but the skew is massive. So this is from a few years ago, um, just in social psychology, so that's my home discipline. Um, uh, This is Obama versus Romney. So the survey of 305 social psychologists. 301 out of 305 five, voted for Obama. Now, I, you know, I'm not arguing that that was a bad thing. I mean, I mean, I voted for Obama. I didn't survey me. So so it's the point is not that this is a good or bad thing, you know, to be for Obama. It is the skew. The point is the skew, which is massive. And so there have been a slew of other, you know, studies that have come out. There's Honeycutt and Freeburg, there's uh, Mitch, Mitch Langbert, there, there's just um, uh, Eric Kaufman. And the skew... In the social sciences and humanities is like between 90 you know like like eight or nine to one up to infinity and when I say up to infinity that there are uh, large hunks of fields at large classes of institutions that have no conservatives and no Republicans so the the ratio is now infinity Um, so so, you know overall I think it's about 90 95 percent people left of center um, and then the remaining 5 to 10% is a smattering of not easily categorizable people, people who are moderates, um, people who might identify as libertarians, which kind of can go either left or right, and then a few, there's. Uh, for all practical purposes, there's no conservatives in the social sciences and humanities. I mean, it's not literally true that I'm sure there's like, you know, a person here and a person there, but for all practical, there's nobody there. Okay, so that's just the data. You asked about data, that's data. Now, that's not a censorious atmosphere. That's just the data. That's just like the skew. But just, just think of it. Just like anyone who is minimally numerate can do this for themselves. The national surveys show that extremists on both sides make up like 5 to 10% of the you know of the population. Um, you, now, if they're on the side, so if they make up, I don't know, 8 or 10% of the population, they might be 20% of the Republican Party, they might be 20, whatever, 18, 20, 25% of the Democratic Party. Okay, so if we're all left, if academia is all left, we're not going to have 8 or 10% people on the extreme left, we're going to have, you know, 15, 20, 25%. And that's that's if we're a random sample of people from the left. And I strongly suspect we are not a random sample. That academia um, is particularly appealing to activists with an action agenda. So I suspect um, that the the, I mean, there's good evidence that the proportion of people who would self-describe as radicals or activists or Marxists um, in the social sciences and humanities, is on the order of magnitude of about 40%. So there's good a, that is a lot of people on the far left. This is not just like, you know, like we voted for Biden. We are talking, you know, self-described radicals, activists, and Marxists. Okay, so it's well, this is well established in general pol- political science literature that extremists are more likely to both caricaturize and misrepresent and be intolerant of the opposition. And that's, we have a substantial, at minimum, a very large minority in in the social sciences and humanities are those people. And they're disproportionately the activist types. So it's very, you know, it's not hard if you're a member of sort of an, uh, you know, a sort of radical activist community. Not that they like that heavily organized in this way, um, uh, where the public face of your discipline are these, well, they're active. That's what it means to be an activist. They are, they are out there. You know, the people who just want to kind of keep their heads down and do the work are not, I mean, they may be publishing, you know, right? And they may be doing conventional academic things, but they're not out there changing the norms of the field. So so you have this, uh, what I suspect, is this very extreme left sort of movement, you know, driving a lot of what's going on in academia. And part of that is cancel culture, punishing people. You know, if you don't adhere to these sort of you know i don't i don't think it's unfair to call them sort of sacred political orthodoxies you are at risk of all sorts of sanction and people know this this is one reason this is one reason the other whatever even if it's 50 60 70% they see tenured faculty being fired they see people having their papers retracted you know without any evidence of fraud or major error because like kind of said the wrong thing they see even if somebody's not being fired there's a number of people who've been demoted they've lost positions because of this kind of stuff and it's completely rational if you're in that environment so you know what i am not going to make certain points it's not worth, you know, it's not worth my career. Even if my career's not at risk, it's not worth the hassle. You know, the, 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 the having to fend off these sorts of attacks in order to make these points. And so, so that is what ends up producing, or is at high risk of presumption, and I think really actually does produce highly skewed canonical, um, um, conclusions. Because people are afraid to challenge them.
0: Okay. So, I have a number of thoughts uh, based on what you said. Um, One thing that I uh, am increasingly uh, thinking about um, when I observe uh, the field and and all this stuff going on is that when when we think about something a lot, I think sometimes there's a tendency to uh, exaggerate the importance of the thing that that we are fixated on. Um, So I... I do have a question. Like, your your perception, say, of these 40% radical activists, this, this came up actually when we had um, Mickey on the podcast because um, we were ta- actually talking about you. We were talking about when you asked a young scholar to back up a claim and then there was this little meltdown on Twitter and people were sort of subtweeting it saying, you just have to block him, it's it's toxic, yada, yada, yada. And I think, you know... Smriti, Smriti sort of publicly spoke out uh, and said, like, this is actually actually fine. And, and so, but what Mickey w- was saying back then is just like, don't, don't mistake Twitter for real life, right? Like, so you, you can have a very biased perception if you just look at who is tweeting because this might be sort of the most extreme. And one other anecdote that I was thinking of when you were talking was um, when the Harper's letter came out, Um, There was almost zero (laughs) tweets or discussion about it from social psychologists. I I, I found it it remarkable. I was refreshing Twitter. Uh, A lot of people outside our field were talking about this and just nobody, nobody, finally Yoel said something about it right but like this was a, i felt a big deal like big name writers um some you know academics a lot of cultural commentators were saying hey i think there's a potentially a problem here and i i wondered about that silence because part of me believes there's a possibility that we uh, get so scared of the vocal minority that we really overestimate their influence and we self-censor to an extent that we don't necessarily have to and that i don't know just in my personal experience of all the colleagues that i have known you know and, and been face to face with there's not that many of them that i would put in this you're an unreasonable person camp and you're likely to um you're likely to discriminate maybe like one or two yes but i often wonder is yeah, are we? And this is something Manny would say probably. Are we just um, imagining a threat that 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 might not be as as severe as we as we sometimes believe?
1: Yeah. So I mean, that's a completely reasonable question. And I mean, I think there's ways in which um, that's true, and there's ways in which it's not true. And and um, and you do want to sort of keep track of those. So one, um, I think it's fair to say. That Twitter is not representative of real life, or the, or even the academy, or social psychology, or anything. Um, uh, I mean, who knows what it's representative of? Uh, but it's not not real life. I mean, I, I I would reject that actually. I mean, these are real academics and scholars. That you know, I think I was like. Um, as part of the incident that you describe, a former president of the of SPSP kind of subtweeted, you know, something about passive aggressive. Like I don't know. It's like, you know, what's what's the source for your claim? Uh, you know, how is that passive aggressive? That's like fact checking. Like, is like, that's an unreasonable. First there's is the issue of is fact checking an unreasonable thing for scientists to be doing? Is, is that and then there's like. That's passive aggressive, like make my head explode. So, you know, that's not not real life. That's like real life. Um, so, and the, it's also real life, because that's kind of how th- there, there's a dynamic here on how radicalization and, you know, the social uh, production of censorship works. Um, And that is, you know, a a small number of activists are usually built on a much larger number of supporters and an even larger number of people who stay silent. And so, papers have been retracted that have started with Twitter mobs. So this is like you know this is not not real. This is like very very real, and it it doesn't take much of this to instill fear. You know. Um, so and I so I think that is the dynamic. Now that doesn't mean and but you still you want to keep in mind and you don't want to. Um, underestimate the extent to which other reasonable and potentially supportive people are out there. You know, that's kind of why I was tickled by your intro to me, is especially on social media, uh, you know, not counting like my regular, I have sort of like, I I don't know, I have like 20,000 followers, but there's a handful of regulars. There's maybe like under two or three dozen regulars who engage and stuff, not counting them much of my interaction with other with there's this is know that's not that's unfair. Probably about half the academics I engage with, everything is completely fine. Like I can ask them, I can ask them questions, I can challenge them. And like, they don't freak out like the world is ending. But the other half are really testy and tense. Now, some of that is, you know, I, I probably have some level of, you know, over-response to things like, things will look like political it's kind of like, I mean, I would plead guilty to what you described earlier, you know, you focus on something for a long time, you have a tendency to exaggerate it, I'm absolutely at risk of that. I mean, in the sense that it is absolutely possible that there have been times when I've reacted to something like it's probably political bias when it wasn't. You know, so I, I, I that's fair. I mean, I think, you know, we're all imperfect and... Um, I probably have a, sh- a shorter trigger on that than you know m- but, but, but on the other hand, I do think i don 't know i 'm pulling this number out of my ear ninety percent of the time or more um, I can justify it, and I can really kind of strongly justify it so
0: well I was actually I was thinking about this very point, and I sort of had this realization that like there are so few people pushing back in the direction that you're pushing back that even if you are only correct 60% of the time let's say it's nonetheless a vital it's a vital counterweight I mean I can almost count on one hand the social psychologists who are willing to say the things that you're willing to say on Twitter I mean it's kind of you there's Corey Clark there's Bo Weingart there's Chris Martin I mean Russell Russell Warren there there's really not many people willing to be publicly contrarian and sort of almost like play the heel right because you know all the accusations that that you're putting yourself in for, and nobody nobody wants to get called racist or sexist or homophobic or nobody wants that's like the worst thing right in for a a liberal academic that's the worst thing that can happen to you so yeah like i had this thought is like yeah everybody's imperfect and these guys are probably wrong you know some of the time but it's just such a rare it's such a rare form of pushback that it's uh yeah just so badly needed um
1: well i really i really appreciate you saying that um and um i think that's absolutely right um I mean, it has to it has to be right, you know. Um, if, a, if if certain topics receive insufficient sort of skeptical vetting and skeptical attention, then you know bad stuff is going to slip through. But I, I'm going to argue that it's actually far worse than that, because even even if you're low, let's go with your 60, percent uh, which I'm you know I th- I I think my hit know, I mean, no, no, no. Low, no 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 not right. But I right. I was going to say I think my hit rate is higher than that, but I, I'm happy to go with that because there are so few of us. That stuff, I you know, there is so much stuff, Paul, that I run across, and it's like, oh my God, this is awful. And I just, you know, I you know, I, I'm work. I have my own stuff to work on. I mean, I'm publishing. I'm doing this like sort of public reports on radicalization. You know, I have my active blog series. I'm chair of my department, so I can't. You can't. I just can't. So the most recent, the, the I'll just just was. I don't know if you saw, Joe Cesario has a paper coming out in behavioral and brain sciences on basically, you know, the, the social cognition stuff, and the impl- especially the implicit stuff, but not only the implicit stuff, is just, you know, not fundamentally, you know... I was gonna say not credible, but it's very hard to take. It, it doesn't serve to be taken as seriously as it's often taken. That's sort of the spirit of it. And he's gotten a lot of pushback saying his, his I've seen a couple of the commentaries that he's selective and it's this and it's that. And that. Okay, so I looked at one closely and it, this one commentary Says, so oh, for example, you know, this stuff, uh, you know, not included in the new Cesario's review is this great study showing that, you know, implicit fat stereotypes, that's what it was on, stereotypes about obesity, um, predict behavior, you know, and predict discrimination or hiring or whatever, whatever it was. So it's said, like, why? Well, I didn't know that paper. So I look at the paper. It's got five main results. They're all just barely below 0.05. So I run them through Yuli Shemak's replication uh, index. The, 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 the R index comes out below 0.1. <laughs> so it's like, no, I'm not gonna run, I, 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 maybe someday I'll, i it's like, it's just gonna sit there, you know, it's just gonna sit there, that, you know, Cesario didn't account for this great research and no one is gonna skeptically vet how great that research is. It's just not gonna happen. Because there's not enough people willing to do it. So...
0: I feel bad saying this, but I've always been very confused by all these uh, systems. So an in R-index of less than 0.1 in practical terms, what, what does that so you, mean?
1: Heuristically, not statistically, um, you can translate the in- index to like the chance of the thing replicating. So you really, you want it a, well above 0.5, around 0.5 or less. Not 0.05, 0.5 is more, heuristically, It's again, it's not statistically, it's like a coin flip whether the thing's going to replicate. So when, you, when you're when you down below 0.1, it's like there's just not a there there. No, no you know, every once in a while, you know, in, imagine a universe where our methods were perfect and no one engaged in anything questionable. It's kind of like, you know, if you flipped a penny a thousand times, millions of times, Somewhere in there, maybe billions of times, you'd get a thousand heads in a row. So it's not impossible that this paper that had the series of results, all of which were just barely below 0.05, really found something's true. It's not impossible. But no one should take it seriously until someone else confirms it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's happened a number of times to me. If you, yeah, you follow the links and follow the citations you end up looking staring at a 0.04 or sometimes a 0.09 let's face it like and like if it's convenient enough for the way people want to see the world like it's amazing it's amazing how the double standards uh just get applied to and but the the weird thing is sometimes Like, we are social psychologists, you know, we discovered all this stuff, like, you know, this is foundational stuff, confirmation bias, you know, if something, if you want to believe something, you'll apply very low thresholds to it and vice versa. And we, we sort of all know this stuff. And that's what makes me, that's kind of just what makes me think, well, maybe most people are kind of seeing what we're seeing as well. But they're also just clever and attuned to the social incentives and the sort of career and political incentives, and just kind of stay quiet about this stuff and just don't step out of line and don't anger the activists. And that sort of makes me feel like, ah, oh, you know, maybe I can have a career in this field. Like maybe I can survive, you know, in like a job committee. Maybe I can squeak by. And like one out of six, one out of six person people might be like, oh, he had legacies. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Guys, no way, no way. Like
1: so. so- it is. It is really interesting. Um, so far, all of my grad students who've wanted to go academic by the end of their career have gone academic. Um, uh, so that has worked. And I, I, I think I don't want to get them in trouble, but I'm pretty sure that in a couple of cases, um, there was like having worked with me was secretly appealing so like the person kind of "Eh, what was it like to work with Lee what was he actually like And which at least one of them was worried after the interview that you know they were kind of scoping her out for bad things but she's now been on that job and kind of knows that person better and that's not, it's the exact opposite of what she was afraid of. So that's actually really interesting. It's really, really interesting. And that's consistent with what you're saying, that the field is not as bad as like the activists on Twitter make it look. I think and, and that to some extent that has always been the case, that the field has been, just in my entire career, you know, there's little cadres of groups. And usually it was not around political things, but it was around you know, the methods that they use or the topics they studied, you know, right? So if you knew, you know, if you wanted somebody who did minimal group paradigm, then you knew someone who did that, and, you know, so their grad student would have a leg up, all else being equal, because that's, right? So, it's always been like that. The the, the core, I, I think you hit one of the nails on the head. I've, you know, one thing, the way I talk about this is is academia is sort of A combination of a guild and and it's a guild that uses a social reputational system. That's really what it is. And so you can succeed, you know, long as you, you know, go by the guild's norms, right? And sort of at least public appearance to certain sort of sacred left narratives is one of the fields norms. That's one of the fields norm. I mean, it wasn't, but it is. I mean, it always was to some degree, maybe. But it's gotten much more. It's. I was going to say it's gotten more. Um, the adherence to that is. it's it's not exactly adherence. You, it is. You can't challenge those norms. Like you can do it. You know, long as you're off in of your own little world, do whatever you want. Long as you're not directly challenging those norms, everybody's going to leave you alone. And. If you're the right kind of person, you can challenge those norms also. So, you know, if you have, you know, a long history of publications about the evils of discrimination and prejudice, and then you come along and you say, "Well, you know, in this situation, prejudice is not as powerful as we once thought." Well, then people will listen because, you know, you've established the political street cred. And there's actually good data on this. Um, uh, Steve Sisi at Cornell um, ran a small, small experiment where I think he extracted um, some text from one of Charles Murray's books. You know, not The Bell Curve. It was one of his more recent books. And he either told people that it was Murray or, or didn't. And he, and he asked them to rate the how uh, sort of biased or slanted the thing was. So if they knew it was Murray, oh, this is just you know hidden conservative agenda. You know, it this reeks of, of right, if they didn't know it was Murray, it's consistently this is very even handed. It's very you know you know it's, it's very apolitical. <laughs> it's like you can't you know so 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 as a guild and a and this sort of weird reputational system, then not only are the I mean, that is a guideline to how you would succeed, you have to conform to the guild, you have to, you know, kind of make sure enough other people see you, you know, positively, you haven't been denounced too much. Um, That's part of it. But from a sort of almost sociological dynamic systems perspective, it's in the fields communal interest. To keep that going, not right from my standpoint, like it's in the scientific interest of the field to bring in more people from the right or non-left. It's not just people on the right. Could be people on the right, moderates, libertarians, you know, apolitical people. Yes, from my standpoint, I think on politicized topics, we would produce more credible work if we did that. But from the self-interest of the field, that's not the case, because if it's easy, right? <laughs> if, if it's going to be, one, dealing with people from opposing political perspectives is uncomfortable. You know, you're going to be challenged, and, you know, and with the rise of safetyism, you know, you're, it's, you're not going to be offended, you're going to feel unsafe. But this is the rhetoric. Who wants to feel unsafe? Nobody should feel unsafe. So, better not to have those people in the field, right? So, that solves that problem. And then... Yeah,
0: that word, it's amazing what's happened with yeah. that word, right, in the last... Yeah. five, I think it's just the last five years. Yeah, it's years. last five years. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. just yeah. the um, yeah, the magic key that unlocks Everything. The, all the outcomes right. you could possibly, yes. possibly want. No, no, but like, I don't, absolutely.
1: Yeah. But then, you know, especially, again, mm. this really matters most if you're doing politicized stuff. If you are on the left and your colleagues are all on the left, you kind of know like, the nerves to hit in order to make it easier to get your work published and funded, you know, kind of, we're all in this together, we know what we, what the outcomes that we want, and, you know, from the standpoint of getting grants, and getting published, and getting tenure, and getting promotions, and being, you know, and and establishing that strong reputation in the field, it's way easier if everybody thinks alike. (laughs) So.
0: That's interesting. I don't, never really thought about that because i mean even even if the field is all liberal there's still a lot of zero-sum competition between liberals right and, and i and i guess this is um this is why the the lingo just keeps uh evolving so fast the things that you say i mean one example um i think Joel was talking about this on a recent podcast just like the way there'll just be a word you've never heard before and you'll see one person sort of tweet it. And then in a few months, that's just now the lingo that all the, uh, all the people that are most dialed in are using. And it's this uh, incredible sort of just signaling um, mechanism. Um, one, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but before a few months ago, I'd never heard people described as minoritized. Have you been seeing this recently? About like, six months ago, minor- yeah yeah minoritized people yada 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 and I'm sure there's some like arcane origin of this word it came and and it's like no we're not a minority we're minoritized somehow you know and it's it's it conveys this like sense that this this status is put upon us by the world or something like that. I'm just <laughs> guessing but like yeah probably it's yeah. something and, like that and I'm like, like you know, like, it's pretty easy just to go with the flow and just, like, use this language and sort of cloak yourself in this this virtue of, like, you're, um, you know, um, or for all the right things, even though, like, most of these people, I think, rarely change the world at all for the better or, or help anybody, but that that's a whole other um, discussion. Anyway, so, uh, but I, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you, though, because I have seen you say some things to suggest that you do recognize some need for some limits on academic freedom. And I love to sort of ask all my guests this, because I think it's, I think it's a really interesting and difficult question that very few people actually sort of grapple with. I think the vast majority of um, sort of left-leaning academic academics just sort of kind of operate on the, well, we know bad speech when we see it right like there's no there's never any sort of principles put down of like what what's kosher what's not but most people most people i think would say yeah we don't want literal nazis giving talks on our campus right like um there there are limits so i'm, I'm just curious like chris chris ferguson had a in kind of interesting take about this but i'm curious if you've thought much about that like what what do you think should be the limits yeah. of academic freedom? Well, there's
1: well, I mean, I I think there are a lot of the there are a number of existing limits by sort of principle by like AAUP 1940 statement by the Chicago principles, most of which I agree with. So there's tons there. You know, my academic freedom. Doesn't give me the right to actually harass you, to insult you, to get up in your face, you, you know, to uh, fling racial or ethnic slurs at you. I mean, I, you know, now, now there is. Well, you could, you could be,
0: you could insult me. <laughs> you, could, you could get on Twitter and just say this paper by Connor at all is a load of shit, and I don't think I could get you fired. Yeah,
1: back. you probably couldn't get me fired for that. Actually, Rutgers Rutgers Union has a very strong, you know, you can't, uh, the, the, the they've got the administration to agree that they can't fire people for their social media activity. So, that, that's now by contract between the Rutgers Faculty Union and and the administration. But not every place has that, actually. So, um, uh, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's well, there's insulting and then there's what people experience as insulting. So you know, if you know, if I say, no, you know, you did this paper, and this paper makes all these claims, and, like, really, I don't. none of them are justified, and here's why none of them are justified, you'll probably feel insulted about that, or whoever I'm having that discussion with. I mean, that's probably 25% of the professors who have blocked me have been because I've, like, criticized <laughs> their paper on Twitter. You know, right? So, I'd love some stats. I'd love some stats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not pulling that number out of my ear, but like it's something yeah. like that. You know, so, so, I mean, kind of like the incidents you talk about. It's like, okay, you made this claim, really, where's the evidence for it? Oh, uh, uh, I think I saw an email a few months ago. Uh, Really? Like, what email? And what was in that? Oh, I could produce it if I wanted to, (laughs) you know, and then I produced all these blocks.
0: That was crazy. Yeah. I, when that was going on, it was multiple academics. Tenure track academics saying, well, I, I looked for it for five minutes and I found I it. I know. And then you looked at what they produced. <laughs> and not post. And they didn't. And it was like, well, where, where's, the, where's the link? What are you talking about? And, oh, man. I, yeah. Well, this is the kind of, I don't know. But this is like Twitter just brings out the worst in people. It really does. And I, you know, I shouldn't even be thinking about these two people who did that. Because, you know, like it was childish, probably not representative and just probably those people, not their best moment. Um, right. Because. I don't know, people are making decisions based on emotion and not thinking it through, but anyway, anyway, go on. So you were saying
1: Yeah. I cut you Yeah where Yeah, where where were <laughs> we What should the limits? Oh the li- right, the limits, the limits of, of my friend. Okay. okay. But yeah. so so you know, so there is this real like, an ongoing issue of use usually it's it's talked about this way of use versus reference to racial and ethnic slurs. Right. So it's one thing if I call you an ethnic slur, it's another if I go, you know, to some historical text on, you know, the, the, the propaganda or justification for racism or anti-Semitism or sexism or any of those things and go through the history of some of the virulent language used as part of that. Now, apparently... In some circles, people are being sanctioned and fired simply for referring to these things, which, you know, as a person who, you know, I mean, I've studied uh, 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 prejudice and stereotypes and discrimination my entire career, like, even in a classroom, I want to be able to talk about that stuff. So, uh, that's like uh, another, but people are now being fired or sanctioned or suspended from teaching, you know, when they do this. Now, not everywhere, it's not, you know, but it doesn't have to be everywhere, that's the thing. Well, if it happens twice, like, oh, hmm, really, maybe I should think twice before doing that. And, of course, that's really hamstringing because... If you want to communicate to 19-year-olds or 28-year-olds how virulent some of the stuff was, really the only—there's probably a few ways to do it, but one of the ways to do it is to prevent them with the virulence, so they can see for themselves. And if you can't do that, it's like, well, you know, yeah, they were just a bunch of crazy people who were prejudiced, and of course, no one today would be anything like that. So, so you know, so, so. so. you know it's really this is a that's a problem but 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 it doesn't allow me to you know let's say some student is annoying me in some way i mean i don't have the academic freedom to start flinging slurs at that person so that's one limit um another limit is entirely there's a couple of other limits that are very very different so you don't have the freedom at least in a classroom to go off half-cocked on things that are unre- unrelated to the top of the class. So if I'm teaching class on on uh, social psychology, uh, you know uh, uh, for the most part I have absolutely no um, academic right to teach people that the world really is flat I mean, it just has nothing to do with social psychology. Even if I believe, I am allowed to believe the world is flat. I am allowed to be as a professor, a member of the Flat Earth Society. I am allowed to post blogs saying the world really is flat, but I am not allowed to go into a social psychology class and start saying, "Well, you know, people, people, uh, you know, the world really is flat," because I have no expertise on geography or or or, or earth science or anything. It's beyond my expertise. So, so
0: that's a, a,
1: one. But you could,
0: you can believe it. You can tweet it. Yeah. But te- if your if your job is to teach social science, that's right. You, you can't. Yeah. You you just, you just yeah. can't
1: do that. And and then the rubber hits the road there when you're teaching something and you inappropriately bring politics into the class. So. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that the... F- f- okay, so let's just... Let me be clear about this. The fact that you don't have... Ac- that you violate your academic freedom in some way doesn't mean you should automatically be fired. There's usually lots of other things that should happen before somebody gets fired. Um, but, you know, if I'm teaching, you know, a pre-calc class, I shouldn't be denouncing Trump. I, I, you know, I, 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 it's just, like, not appropriate for the class. So, So... I and mean, probably in academia, nobody would get in any trouble for denouncing trump unless unless there was a student in the class who recorded the thing and presented it to Fox News, who then generated an outrage mob, an external outrage mob to you know pressure the university to do something about the that actually that might get the person in hot water. But in the within academia, nobody's going to complain about that.
0: Yeah. These things sound reasonable as as limits. That last thing you said made me curious about something because I've read a couple of blogs you've written how to survive a cancellation attack, uh, and and they were quite interesting. But I'm curious, like, what... Like, sometimes I just think, like, how does Lee still have his job, right? Like, because I see the things you post on Twitter, and, like, I saw what happened to Charles Negi, for example... And you know the stuff you tweet sometimes not super far away from the stuff that he tweeted, which led to him losing his job. And and that was a very interesting case study because the university was aware they couldn't fire him for the tweet, so invented or it certainly seems to me invented this large investigation, spoke to 150 people, finally found some dirt, and were able to get rid of him. And I'm I was I'm wondering like, what what yeah like have. Why hasn't there been petitions? Let's get rid of Elijah Sim, like from the like activist students at Rutgers. Like, I'm I'm honestly curious about that. And what has there been? A, and, and if not, why why do you think not?
1: Um, there are a small. There's a small cadre of grad students in the department who uh, have tried to gin up such an attack, and they basically failed. Um, uh, I don't want to go into a lot more detail than that. Mm. Um, Yeah,
0: that's fine. fine.
1: But so yes, I have been subject to some of those attacks. Those attacks have so far failed. In and and that's sort of how I cut my teeth. On, I mean, I'm a fast study. I you know being subject to a cancellation attack is a surreal experience for someone who has not been subject to such an attack. Um, people's, you know, uh, you know, it, it appears that people are just making stuff up. They may believe what they're saying, uh, they're, but what they're saying is often absurd. Or, um, even if it's not absurd, it's so out of context that, um, that any, uh, I I am confident that most of the world, if they saw the fuller context, would uh, say yeah okay this was like completely reasonable. So so, um, you know, the the chair position is semi-elected here. So there's a, there's an election that's formally a recommendation to the dean. So the, the appointment is at the dean's behest. So, I mean, I ran on a post, you know, so, so it's, it's like, so, you know, so it was unanimous, right? So, uh, so <laughs> um, now, now, that's not saying as much as it might, like, it's a pain in the ass job and not many people, it's like, hardly anyone wants it and very few, even fewer are willing, maybe slightly more, are willing to do it, but it's not many people are willing to do it. Um, so... I would say most faculty realize that, that complex of things, um, and I would say, you know, at this point, I probably have a handful of people in the depar- of faculty in the department who really don't like me, um, but it's a t- I think it's a tiny minority, you know? Um, and so I have the support, of, I have the support of the overwhelming majority of the faculty, my terms up at the end of this year, and I'm not gonna, I could run for another term, but I've been in this, it'll be four years at the end of this point, And it's just enough. It's just I mean, I was chair from 2010 to 2013. So it's a three year term, you're permitted to have two consecutive, you know, consecutive terms. So for six years, but I didn't want I didn't want it then. And I don't want it now. So it's like, it's it's hard. It's been really hard with COVID and the social justice protests. And you put all that together, it's been really, really hard. I mean, COVID produced this massive budget-cutting thing. The, the Rutgers decided that it was going to cope with all this by putting its already Byzantine bureaucracy on steroids. So it's just, that's been a nightmare to deal with. And just, just sort of oppressive in its own way. Um, so, so you know, I, 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 so so th- that's it. I mean, I've, 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 I I've think I have good relations with most of the faculty, nearly all of the faculty. Um, we actually just, um, we just hired our first, I mean, this was my initiative. We have a diversity postdoc position, which, which you know, t- I, I, I mean, I've been pushing for that for years. We finally got the administration to get it. Um, The idea is for it to be a vehicle to get more people from, you know, sort of marginalized or underrepresented backgrounds into the pipeline, Um, uh, you know, people, people in our field seem to think like, like it's hydraulic or oppositional, you know, political diversity and demographic diversity. That just seems ridiculous. That's like I, you know, that's their delusion. You know, um, they're not inherently in opposition at all, um, unless, unless, you know, if, you know, if, if being around someone from a non-left background makes people feel unsafe well then i guess they are in, in opposition but that's what it has to take uh, uh, but i do think that perspective is you know i, I don't want to be around people like that I mean, it's like you know you can't have a serious intellectual conversation about around people like that because who knows what's going to make them feel unsafe you know if, if i critique the implicit bias work I mean, I have a paper that's under review now critiquing the work on microaggressions. Imagine like a follow up. I don't know if you know the Lillianfeld paper, you know, sort of, you know, strong claims, weak evidence about microaggressions. It's kind of like a follow on on that. Well, uh, you know, again, there's this guy who who was fired or suspended. I think he was tenured. He might not have been tenured. I'd have to double check for saying microaggressions are bullshit. Now, this is a scholarly paper. We don't say microaggressions are bullshit. But the paper says microaggressions are bullshit without saying, quote, microaggressions are bullshit. It doesn't quite say they're bullshit. Because, of course, microaggressions exist. Like, you know, academics academics are among the best in the world at subtly insulting each other. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So... Yeah, of course they exist, but that doesn't mean the, you know, the alleged scientific basis for them and the, you know, the sort of the blue around them is, is justified. So, but in fact, that, that yeah, may make I, someone feel unsafe.
0: I, um, I suffered a microaggression just the other day. Uh, so Keith Payne has his theory, bias of crowds. I wrote a response. He wrote a response to my response. spelt my name wrong. <laughs> C-O-N-N-E-R at one point in the paper. C-O-N-N-O-R at another point in the paper. I feel very unsafe, and I'm <laughs> right. I'm going to write to the journal, and no. So it's interesting you talk about microaggressions. So Smitty and I and Manny and Rachel kind of started a project to like really look into the evidence, and it's pretty amazing how flimsy the evidence trail is there. Like the ultimately, the evidence that microaggressions are a thing and causally you know affect outcomes and causally hurt people's mental health is all based on sort of correlational studies right so people who self-report i'm 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 constantly suffering these microaggressions are more likely to self-report you know having anxiety and depression and stuff like that and i think like to an unbiased observer there's some obvious confounds here right um it you know, it's it's obviously we know that neuroticism is a thing, and I don't I don't know. So let's let let's just say like it's pretty clear that the e- evidence base is not very strong, and it's it's kind of remarkable and a good demonstration of the sort of ideological bias in the field of just like the how 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 just like how much certainty there are around the claims people people make around around these things. But yeah, so. Here's, my, here's another question. The the cadre that you mentioned, grad students at Rutgers would like to get rid of you, get, see you fired. Do you think it is... Do you think they have an inaccurate view of who you are and what you believe? Or do you think they have an accurate view of who you are and what you believe, but fundamentally different goals for what academia is and, and what it should be? Or is it a mix of the two? Like, do you think if we got you in a room... And really got you to understand each other. Whether you could sort of find common ground with these people, or is is there a fundamental difference of opinion about you know what our role is as 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 social scientists?
1: Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, I do. I, I'm I'm pretty sure um, that they they. I mean, so. Some of the claims that I have seen in writing are clearly inaccurate. However, I don't think the inaccuracy is what's driving the hostility. So then that raises what is driving the hostility. And there, I do think... It is sort of. I think it is this irreconcilable difference, and that is, I see, the uh, the liberal order that is, individual rights, the reliance on evidence and data, um, free speech, academic freedom, that is the sort of the liberal order. Um, for both politics and also the conduct of science, actually, as at odds with and threatened by, um, and and corroded by the rise of you know I, you know it's this, this sort of combination of cancel culture, what some people call wokeness. What's now the current thing is critical race theory, postmodernism, intersectionality, that entire sort of witch's brew of intellectual ideas, some of which explicitly um, uh, come out and and present themselves as in opposition to this liberal order. um, so, you know, I think once you move from individual rights to group rights, you become very dangerously close to almost every oppressive system that has ever existed. Whether you're talking about Nazis or, or, or the, uh, you know, the Soviet Communists or the Chinese Communists, you know, that's saying that it is the same. But you begin to have, a, you know, <laughs> group rights. You know, and an emphasis on group rights tr- typically tramples individual rights, and that's, you know, it's we are in the United States. The United States is not the Soviet Union. You know, there's the Constitution and there's rule of law and all this stuff. So I don't want to overstate that. We're not on the verge of having gulags or death camps. But the, but. I mean, I, I would say, and I have talked about it this way, and I, there are some like-minded people who have talked about, you know, over the last year or so, the country sort of un- undergoing, I don't think it's over yet, something like a soft cultural revolution. You know, the actual Chinese cultural revolution, you know, you know, mass killings and, and you know, sort of... Um, um, struggle sessions where people were basically tortured to, you know, confess fealty to the regime and stuff publicly. Um, So, you know, none of that has happened, which is why. But uh, Greg Lukinoff from FIRE has argued very articulately, and I have a blog on this, but that drew heavily on some of his stuff, um, that it's that, that this sort of authoritarianism, censorship, is often driven far more by social norms than by laws and rules. So, yeah, I think we have that. I I think we have that. So I think that's the, um, I see that, you know, sort of endorsement of the set of ideas as being fundamentally anti-liberal, anti-individual rights. And um, and I think that's really, really dangerous. And and I, mm. I would I think that's what pisses them off.
0: So going forward, I mean you you tweeted today academia is lost. <laughs> but then you're also calling yourself an activist yes, for these things, right? right? So like like what what do you really Like, what's your real view about the prospects for these things going forward? Because I certainly (laughs) think there's a possibility that a lot of this stuff is a bit faddish. Like, okay, take a guy like Ibram X. Kendi, right? Like, he's become very, very popular, very, very fast. Um, But his ideas are very shallow and, and just weird, right? Like, so, like, literally... Literally any, he, he basically says an anti-racist policy, which is what we need to have, is, you know, any policy that leads to equality between social groups, right? So literally, if I make a policy that lets choose one out of 10 white people, burn their house down, this is an anti-racist policy because, right, right the racial groups are going to end up more equal. Now, obviously, like, this is a very basic counter uh, counter-argument, but like... He doesn't really have a response to this and he kind of just talks to people that won't like won't make this very obvious counter argument and I just think that like people are too smart and rational ultimately in the long term <laughs> for this stuff to really I mean I know yeah the word equity all of a sudden has started to mean like equal outcomes for groups but it's like yeah well you know like Lenin and Stalin tried that Like, and we we have, you know, the world history where, like, there's a lot of evidence that if you you want absolute equality, things can go wrong. You know, like, what's the policy? What's the policy intervention that you're talking about? Like, and let's talk about pros and cons and stuff like that. So, yeah, I guess long-winded question, but what do you, like, going forward, do you really think academia is lost? Or do you just think, like, with enough time and enough sort of just people making sort of reasoned counter arguments and talking through these things and coming sort of coming together more that we can sort of get back to some uh compromise between academia is about academia is about truth-seeking we should be able to say what we want and you know no like social psych does have its roots in we're trying to improve the world we're trying to make for a better more equitable world and ultimately kind of you know that that I'd love that to come from my research, you know, uh, as much as anybody, I think. So, yeah, like, next 10 years, next 20, 20 years, wh- where do you see this stuff going? Or, where, wh- like, what's an optimistic day for Lee, Justin, <laughs> and what's a, what's a pessimistic day well, for Well, okay,
1: so, so um, let me start with the optimistic, actually, uncharacteristically. Um, I have been pleasantly surprised... Um, and this is consistent with your fad and actually, you know, when I made sort of a very pessimistic presentation at like a free speech conference, Phil Tetlock was one of the commentators on my talk. And he said, yeah, these things come and se- go in cycles. I, you know, I'm not so sure that it's quite as bleak as you are. And, you know, just, I, just, Phil's a pretty smart guy and it has been around for a while. Um, so I can't, I, you know, I'm not going to like discount that. Um, uh, so... You know, there's the Academic Freedom uh, Alliance that recently came out. This is centered out of Princeton, of all places. I think it was a um, a response um, to that the letter, you know, the open letter from Princeton faculty, you know, calling for all sorts of, you know, diversity, anti racist initiatives, most of which. Were at least not ridiculous, and were worth considering, except a Big Brother committee, you know, to monitor, you know, and and ensure no racism and anything anyone teaches, publishes, or any grants or whatever. And so that was kind of that's the sort of stark and terrifying Orwellian version of anti-racism, kind of that you were alluding to um, in talking about, you know, how, how do we make everything exactly equal all the time? Um, and I think this group, which is centered, you know, its its organizers are out, of, are all or mostly out of Princeton. I think that was a response to that. Um, I don't know that for sure. I don't know them well enough. To know that, but I strongly suspect that, and that was surprising to me. That was like, whoa! So there are, you know, it's not just me and four other people. <laughs> There's actually a lot of other people out here who are beginning to feel this way. So, it's, and they asked me to be one of the initial, you know, signers to this thing. And it's like, I, you know, after going through, well, what are you talking about? though blah. It's like, oh yeah, this looks great. Oh, they have this great statement. Um, on how they will defend people's rights to say really offensive things, and they have a list of concrete things, you know, both left and right, Um, and... You know, and they make it really clear. This doesn't mean we support any of these things. We just support people's right to make these points. Um, And we will defend them. We will publicly defend people who make points, not just these points, points like these points. It's just really, it's a thing of beauty. So that was really, that was really, really quite good. you know, outside academia, there are other organizations. There's Fair, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Just sort of John McWhorter, and I think Helen Pluckrose might be involved in that, and you know, that's Glenn Lowry is involved in that. And that's you know, so those are. I don't think it's only academics, but it's a bunch of academics are involved in this. And it's sort of, you know, doing anti racism from an, you know, individual rights, liberalism, you know, kind of perspective, as opposed to a sort of group-based critical theory, you know, woke intersectionality kind of version. Um, so I think that was good also. So this is a whole slew, so consistent with the idea that, well, you know, this is a sort of ebbing and flowing. It may well be that the uh, pushback to these things that you know, have happened over the last few years is beginning. Okay, that's the optimistic version. And that is, that was a good, those were good days actually. Uh, but I, I actually don't believe it. I, I think it's too little too late. I think these uh, organizations are, I'm really glad they exist. I hope they get stronger. I will do my best to help them get stronger. I may be wrong in my pessimistic assessment. The fact that, you know, I, I mean, I want to draw an imperfect analogy. Um, one of the ways I would rally myself when losing in a tennis match is to uh, first acknowledge that I was screwing up left and right. Um, and that, um, and then I would say, like, okay, I don't really care whether I win or lose this match. I'm probably going to lose the match, but I want to just stop sucking. And that worked for me. Uh, I would then, you know, not worry about the score, just try and do what I could do. And often, not always, because nothing in sports, you know, if you're doing reasonably even competition, nothing always works. But my game would rally. And I would have, like, a fighting chance, even though, like, maybe I was down 3-0 or 4-1 or something like that. Okay, so this is sort of the same. This is like, okay, it looks really bad. But there are people doing things, and... Oh, I'm gonna do my part to help this rally. And maybe that will work, but I don't think so. You know, you asked specifically about 10 and 20 year forecasts. I, I, I've tweeted this a couple of times. It's gonna get worse before it gets worse. My, my, you know, so over the next 10 years, I think it's just gonna get worse. I really, you know, now, am I sure of that? Of course I can't, it's the future. No one knows the future. Maybe Tetlock's for super forecasters know the future, but normal people don't know the future. Um, so I think it's probably gonna get worse before it gets better because all the, the momentum is in the getting worse direction. You know, I'll believe, you No, know, I mean, most of my beliefs like this are subject to falsification. And maybe, you know, because I think about things, you know, and maybe I get tunnel visioned, maybe it'll take a little more to falsify it than if I didn't get tunnel vision. But, you know, if the cancellations stop or slow down, well, okay, it's like, yeah, we really haven't had that in the last few years. I mean, it might take a few years to notice that, um, but, I, you know, I could be wrong. And then once you go further out, but I don't think so. I mean, my best guess is that it's just going to get worse because, you know, the skew is getting worse Right, so you can have more and more radicals. The radicals are the radicals and extremists are energized and encouraged because they've been successful. So, why, why should they stop? I mean, there's no reason, there's nothing stopping them at this point. So, I expect that to get worse before it gets worse. Over 10 years, it's probably gonna get worse. When you go out 20 years, it's too far out to see. You know, things. Things do go in cycles, but they can go in very, very long cycles. You know, McCarthyism lasted from, like, the mid or late 40s to, like, the early 60s. You know, to around 1960. Or That's 15 years. And then it, like, never completely went away. I mean, you could still get into trouble for being or coddling communists even in the early 60s. Uh, But it wasn't quite like it was under McCarthyism. But that's, you know, 15 years. And people got fired for that. So... You know, the, the, the uh, you know, you go back, f- back far enough, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the actual witch hunts, the 17th, 18th century witch hunts, this lasted for centuries. You know, the Inquisition lasted. Now, things worked s- more slowly then. Things were probably on a faster, you know, cycle thing now. But uh, it's, you know, yeah. and, and, and academia changed, right? Academia emerged from the church right mm. so we're not we're pretty much unhinged from the church so things change it's very hard to see how things will change that far out. Yeah it's
0: what I, I think the AFA is great and stuff like that and and I um I tuned in to their um, online um, meeting when they, they sort of announced themselves and founded it I thought it was it was great like it's great to, listen to people and like you said just realize oh it's not just me i'm not going crazy like other people sort of see what's going on here too i mean for me it's like I'm just in an interesting position right like so i found this postdoc so i'm good for two years theoretically unless you know somebody hears this podcast and (laughs) and gets it taken away from me right and it was interesting because yoel tweeted something which was like aha this is proof that podcasting is not a death sentence for your career and I actually messaged him and I was like, well, don't be, don't, not so fuss, yo. Well, this was an NSF postdoc, which was reviewed blind. So I, I went for, you know, multiple jobs and it, and it's interesting. And I, I don't think, I think it's very unlikely that this was about politics, but one postdoc that I went for at one college, um, it was a six person committee, four out of six people sort of upvoted my, um, my application which is as many as anybody else got um but they eventually decided not to hire me to just stick with sort of postdocs that they had sort of in-house who didn't get anything on the job market yada 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 and i don't think that was about politics but it's an interesting example of this uh, social reputational system that you talk about right because if i'm in the position in two years going on the job market i need you know like there's these job committees and if you know, one out of six people has a problem with me based on something they've seen or something, you know, sort of taken out of context, or something that I've said, sort of repeated, with the worst possible interpretation, which is just like endemic on, on, on Twitter and these these culture war issues. Yeah, it could be really hard to get a job. And I, I try to tell myself, well, you know, if I can't survive in this field and also just Speak freely and say things that I think are true it 's probably not the field for me, right? This is what I try to tell myself, but that 's fucking hard and i i don 't know like part of the reason i haven 't done a pod for so long is because, yeah, like this my job search was sort of coming to an end, I was, like nothing had worked out. I was getting ready to just sort of go back to Berkeley for a seventh year because I was just thinking, well, you know, I took one shot at the job market. It hasn't really come off, but, you know, COVID, right? So don't give up on academia just yet. But, yeah, like, um, and it's so, yeah, it's tough in this position. Like, because, like we've talked about, it's very, very hard to assess how real these these risks are. Um, and I do try to just come back to this, you know, this this basic personal motto that you know makes sense like in the abstract where you're not thinking about oh but like i've spent 12 years working towards this career and i've just had a baby that i have to support and stuff like that so if you can put that aside and just live by this motto of like well i i you know if i can't be honest i shouldn't be in this field but yeah it's really it's it's hard and confusing and, and just difficult to know to know the risks and i yeah like i hope you're uh, optimistic take is right, but I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, know, on the, on a different version of the optimistic take, um, almost everyone I know who has ever gone non-academic has been really happy. I mean, they just really love their jobs. Um, So, you know, one of the many dysfunctions of academia, is that academics act like, you know, like, of course, anyone who was worth their salt would get an academic job, that you're some sort of failure if you don't go academic. And, like, I love this job, it, uh, you know, with even with everything, the job is great. I, I have the, fr- I, you know, in part because of this, like, individual kind of thing, I can do whatever the hell I want. I can change, you know, I can teach more. I'm going to have to teach certain things, but I can teach them how I want. I mean, I really thoroughly revamped my social psych course um, about four or five years, my undergrad social psych course about four or five years ago because of the replication crisis. So the first third of the course has no social psychology because... The one, it just is less social psychology that I consider credible, so this is not really that much of a loss, but it's like to think about social phenomena, you need a foundation in logic, sort of philosophy of science, um, some degree in methods, and also history. Right. In part, because I, I mean, I teach. I now teach academic freedom and free speech because without it, you can't do social psych on controversial issues. So, it's a th- so I'm a lot, like nobody is breathing down my neck that I no, you can't do that in social psych course. That's like an amazing thing. That's like a, just like it's, it's. great. And and I, you know, just again, separating all the separating out the bullshit that comes with it. I love the whole empirical side. I love writing. You know, the empirical side is you actually get to answer a question, even imperfectly. You know, I mean, the great message of the replication crisis has been that our methods are often not really up to the task, and I think that's probably right. But even so, the attempt to answer these things I just find really interesting and kind of satisfying. So, um, I mean, just most recently, and this is sort of consistent with the, uh, the, the tenor of this discussion. Uh, this last year, I advised an honors thesis um, that looked at the role. You know, there's this recent spate of papers measuring left wing authoritarianism. Right. So right. So and that's new. Um, so we administered both left wing and right wing authoritarianism scales, and we used them to predict support for peaceful and violent protests. Separately. And the authoritarian measures both predict violent protests. Um, So I just really, it's not really a stunning finding, but, you know, when you combine it with the academic denial of and silence around the violent social justice protests last summer, That, to me, constitutes further evidence that our field is, you know, maybe not dominated by, but has a left-wing authoritarian strain that runs through it deep. Even though this honest thesis was not about academics. It was like, okay, you know, you can kind of see it. You can, you know, you have the extremism, you have cancel culture in academia, um, uh, and... Um, It was very easy to see the denial about the violence. It's like, you know, to even bring up the violence. How dare you at a time like this? You know, this is the time for the racial reckoning, which, you know, that's an important on its merits. But, you know, the the riots ultimately caused literally billions of dollars worth of damage. And like just to be in denial about that is like just kind of seems unhealthy, actually. So anyway, so that was really fun. That was just great to be involved in something like that. Uh, it's great to be able to do that kind of thing. And then there's the, the flexibility. That we, you know, I, I mean, we talked before we started. I didn't really start my work day till like 2.30 today. And, and now I'm gonna work late. There's like plenty of things to do, but to have the option of doing that is just wonderful. I see you have a baby when, you know, I mean, I had three kids. My wife stayed at home, so that made it a lot easier. But she didn't, but even when she was staying at home, it's like she would need a break. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not teaching on Tuesday. I'll take the kids on Tuesday. Do whatever the hell you want. I need to start working at around five or six o'clock. Just to be able to do that is amazing. It's completely amazing. What kind of jobs let you, I mean, there are some other jobs that let you do that, but it's just not many, so.
0: Yeah, it's like passive income.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, uh, yeah, uh,
0: we should tell the listeners why you started work at two thirty.
1: Oh, because I play tennis. Well, I play tennis. <laughs> I play t- How many sets? How many sets? I only play two. T- I only play two sets. But then I did a little shopping afterwards, yes. and uh, I, they, it was early in the morning, so I went home and I took a nap. <laughs> so between between yes. tennis, a little uh, kind of grocery shopping, and a nap, that got me till about two o'clock. Started around two thirty. Wow. <laughs> My
0: goodness! I mean, I'm. My body is already breaking down. I used to play a lot of pickup basketball. Can't do that at all. Very envious that you can still get out there and play tennis.
1: Yeah, it's mostly it's mostly doubles. You know, I do have various physical issues. Doubles is less grueling than single. I, I used to play mostly singles, but I can I can still play singles on clay. But if I play singles on a hard court, my knee begins to give out. So.
0: Nice. Yeah. And who who is your tip for the French Open?
1: Well, <laughs> rooting for Nadal. I mean, it's just Nadal. Everything about Nadal is just it. It, it is. I, I identify with the way he plays tennis. You know, uh, both both my tennis game was. I mean, I was obviously I was never in the same in the same universe, let alone league. But that grinded out. You know, I, I in in my thirties and forties, I was fit. I was quick, I would make the other guy hit another ball. If you do that often enough, you win a lot of matches. And I I had two streaks. I had streaks from 1987 to 1996, and then again from 2004 to 2011, where I used to play amateur tournaments, and I had at least one trophy a year for each of those streaks. Now, a trophy might have been coming in second, might have been losing in the final, but you get a trophy from that. So when I had these like streaks of like 10 and 8 years of at least one trophy a year.
0: Yeah, tennis is... Um it's a remarkable sport just in terms of how alone you are out there yeah. and how much you yeah. really need to sort of dig in yeah. and, and persevere and, and it's really like made for just the more sort of tenacious you are. Yeah. Like Michael Jordan would have been an amazing yeah. tennis player. Yeah, yeah. And you know and I mean you you bring that energy to your Twitter arguments too, <laughs> which is <laughs> For better or worse. <laughs> I actually I can't believe I'm not I'm not r re- I am not i am not do not really follow tennis, but I, I feel like every couple of years I check in on it. And I'm, like, amazed that Nadal and Federer are still, still yeah, it's amazing. at the top of... It's, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I was a kid and these guys yeah. were at the top. Yeah. And it's like... It's, it's amazing. I'm very far past being a kid now and they're still going. Yeah. It's really yeah, remarkable yeah. that they haven't been um, usurped. Yeah. I can't believe it. And Nadal, yeah, I've heard he's a very good guy. Like, a very yeah, good loser. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Go, go Nadal. Now, I've, I've had you for a long time. I should probably let you go. Is there anything else you want to hit on? I,
1: I you know, I we covered a lot that? of territory, so I think that's fine. You go on too long, you know, you lose people. We'll probably lose people anyway, so... Um. Yeah. So you can find
0: <laughs> you can find Lee on Twitter. Psych PsychRabble. You all probably already knew that. <laughs> uh, and uh, you write regularly in Psychology Today. I do. And then, you know... I guess check JPSP for the very occasional. <laughs> uh, was uh, Jusim Coleman and Lurch? Was that a JPSP? Yeah, because oh yeah, that, that was one of that was really one of the formative studies of like my qual's. Uh, really, because I was all about yeah, I was all about race and class. Yeah, yeah. Um, and comparing the effect of race, the effect of class, and implicit bias tests, and that was really an interesting starting point because i mean this is getting very technical and probably boring people but like i really liked that paper how you went through uh sort of uh, enumerated a number of competing hypotheses uh and then tested them against some data and i if i recall correctly none of them really came out like a clear winner but you had some quite interesting data and it seemed like quite an
1: elaborate experiment yeah. too yeah yeah it's like quite in a the lot 80s of work. especially yeah. yeah 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 so just you know we we that that's Study. It was a single study, uh, but a rich study. It examined uh, basically the role of racial, social class, and speech style, essentially stereotypes in, in people's judgments of job applicants. Um, and uh, we got huge uh, social class and speech style effects. Exactly what you would think. That you know, when people, you know, we did it by appear by by the way people dressed, by the way the targets dressed. Um, so if they kind of looked like they were from a lower class background as opposed to an upper class background, they were really p- evaluated pretty pretty m- much less favorably than somebody from an upper class background. We had sort of standard versus non-standard English speakers. Um, we purposely didn't, we wanted to unhinge it from race, so we created this speech style that was this weird mix of um, uh, uh, black English You know, sort of, there was all the sociolinguistic stuff about the characteristics of black English that we drew on. My advisor, actually, uh, 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 Loretta Coleman, actually had done all sorts of stuff with that. Um, and Brooklyn and Brooklynese, um, so that, you know, that's also a limitation. Does anybody actually speak like that? Who, who really knows? I don't know. Um, we, we got race effects, but they were kind of in the wrong direction. That when after after, you know, we did all this orthogonally. So it was race by class by uh, by by speed style. And you know, so your people were evaluating black and white tar- uh, target. App, you know, the context was for job applications. So black and white applicants who were appeared to be either from an upper class or lower class background, who spoke either standard or non-standard English. And so when we did that, there was like a small, you know, statistically significant, but it was a small main effect, whereby overall people judged the black applicants more positively than the otherwise identical um, white applicants. So, yeah, mm. that
0: was that, that. It's And it just, I assume
1: nobody ever cited that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's me. done, I mean no. it was JPSP, right? So it gets, you know. Yeah. The, so, um, the, it, it has yeah, not done yeah, badly. Right, right. It was JPSP. No, it was yeah, JPSP. Was so it has not done badly. You know, I don't know if it's done as well as a typical JPSP, but it has not done badly. And we so, you know, we were very careful. You know, we didn't do any like, oh, look, racism is dead. You know, we didn't do yeah. anything like that yeah, in the yeah. paper. So,
0: so you know, it, it would be fair to call you a father of intersectionality research. <laughs>
1: Because. Right. The, the idea, the idea, it's as if the world has just discovered that the, that people are not just like a single category. And it's like, make my head explode. It's just like, this is, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just so, now, I, I don't want to be overly dismissive. I mean, I think the original um, sort of insight was on how the law worked. You know, Mm -hmm. and so I I think there was, you know, this is beyond my area of expertise, but I believe there was some case where some big company yeah, General Motors. Yeah, um, right. It was a cl- right. So they got out of a discrimination suit because you know, they weren't discriminating against black men. And they weren't discriminating against women, but you know, if it was black women, they, they were nowhere to be found. So something like that. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, that's a good point and valid. And I'm glad that was exposed. And to the extent that that's what intersectionality means, I'm on board.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was a, it was a great yeah, insight. Yeah. It's just it's just kind of morphed into something quite quite different now like um yeah i mean it like uh, i i come at it from a slightly different point of view which is that like well you really need uh your the targets in these experiments to be as reflective of real world complexity as possible to really uh assess how much these things matter right because if you as studying things one variable at a time it can totally obscure the fact that some some variables going to dominate over others when when they're all varied anyway uh, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Hopefully, after two years when I'm on the job market, nobody will remember <laughs> that I interviewed you. It'll be so far in the rearview mirror, and nobody will care. Uh, I mean, I am slightly concerned because, you know, like I announced on Twitter I got this job, and then I got a, the, a bunch of new followers, right? And it's like, hey, you read their Twitter bio, and it's like, mm, yeah, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you back. I'm not sure you're gonna like everything <laughs> that I like or retweet or that I cover in the podcast, but we'll see we'll see how it goes. I do I hold out hope for the, the optimistic view that, you know, most people are reasonable. As long as everything you say is reasonable, you're willing to be proven wrong, people see that, you are just basically decent to people in person, you can survive in this field and, and do good science and, and strive for truth. I you know, and I yeah. I hope um, I hope you're wrong that academia is lost. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm
1: wrong too. That would be great. All
0: right,
1: <laughs> All right. thank you so much, Lee. Yeah. Have a great week. Yeah, thank you. This has been great.